Well, good morning, church. If you consider it a blessing to be in the house of the Lord, would you say amen? amen. It's a time of Thanksgiving. It's a week of Thanksgiving, and I'm thankful to be here with you. Obviously, I'm not Brother John, and your handout in your bulletin is not going to be much help this morning. We're going to be in a different spot. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Uh, just uh, down the highway, I've been helping out of church on Sunday nights and been preaching through the book of Acts, and I was due for the middle part of Acts 2 tonight, and so if you'll allow me, we're going to use it for our service as well this morning. Um, obviously, we lift up Brother John. He was on his way to the emergency room in Baptist uh, yesterday afternoon and asked if I could, could speak. Uh, it's funny, the last time he asked me to preach for him, he forgot to tell me. Uh, so uh, Levi, uh, our youngest, he was born, and I found out uh, right when I was holding my newborn baby boy that I was preaching the next Sunday night. But uh, he had a good excuse this time, so I'll forgive him. But maybe next time he can ask me a different way. But uh, very appreciative of getting to be here with you. And as we gather around God's Word, Acts chapter 2, we have a very powerful, powerful message. The book of Acts is all about the sharing of the gospel message. It's about Jesus empowering his church to share the gospel. The book of Acts contains the early history of the, what we call the early church. And Jesus is involved with his believers. In fact, if you just look in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke is the writer. And he sends this collection of writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. And we don't know much about him, but Luke says one thing that's very clear. He says, Theophilus, what I wrote in the past was just what Jesus began to do, both to do and preach. And Acts is now the rest of the story. So Luke prepares Theophilus. He says, there is more about Jesus that has not been said. And Jesus in the book of Acts is still at work, he is still teaching, and he is still saving, but he is doing it through the life of the church, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as we get to Acts chapter 2, we see the event of Pentecost, where Peter stands before a crowd of people on that day, and he preaches the gospel. He makes much of Jesus, he pronounces Jesus as king, and 3,000 souls get saved. So as part of our sermon this morning, we're going to look at Peter's first sermon. Now in the book of Acts, we're told that the disciples were to wait. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, You wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and he will give you power. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the theme of the whole book, Jesus says, You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then you will go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so now in Acts chapter 2, as the earth has gathered around Jerusalem for Passover, Luke tells us that there are Jews from every nation under heaven, all across the Roman Empire, all gathered in one spot. And in Acts chapter 1, or Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says that when they're gathered together, the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in a mighty way. He unifies the believers together. He fills them with the Holy Spirit, and he allows them to share the gospel in the languages that the crowds can understand. And Peter gets an awesome opportunity as this crowd of believers are gathered together, as they're amazed that they can hear the gospel in their own dialect, in their own language. They ask, how is this? What manner is this? We hear the mighty acts of God. How can we understand this message? And Peter stands up and he gives them an explanation. And in Acts chapter 2, he says that the Holy Spirit has come and that it is a sign that God's plan of redemption has now gone forth to the world. And beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we see Peter's first formal address, this very first sermon. 
And this is where we're going to begin in our text this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. If you will, I'd just like to take a couple moments. Would you stand with me in order of the reading of God's word? We're just going to start with just a few verses. And we're going to ask God to bless the reading of his word. This is Acts chapter 2, Peter's very first address. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless the reading and sharing of your word. We know that your word has power. We heard through our Gideon testimony this morning. We're thankful that your word goes out to the world and it accomplishes your will. We ask that you would bless your word this morning. Help us to make much of Christ in our service and help us to gather around your word. Teach us what you would have us to learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter gives to us a a three-point outline, you might say. The first explanation that he does is he describes who Jesus is. If you look in verse 21, he invites the crowd from the book of Joel. He says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so now beginning in verse 22, he's got to describe why is Jesus so special? What makes Jesus Lord? And as we just sung in our last song, what makes Jesus Lord is not just his perfect life, It's not just his perfect death for us on the cross. It is his glorious resurrection. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter begins to identify the reality of the resurrection. And the first way he does it in verse 22 is he describes God's role in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to offer you just a few basic points this morning. And our first one is really a two-for-one. I want to give you a two-for-one special in honor of the holidays. How's that sound? So on verse 22, Peter describes two aspects that's always difficult for us to fathom. He stresses God's sovereignty, and he stresses man's responsibility. So number one this morning, without the sovereignty of God, there is no complete gospel. Without the sovereignty of God, there is no complete gospel. And yet equally true, without man's responsibility... There is no complete gospel. Without God's sovereignty, there's no gospel. And without man's responsibility, there's no gospel. Let's look at what Peter has to say, verse 22. He addresses the crowd. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. And he gives a description of Jesus. He calls him the Nazarene. He identifies him based on his hometown. Peter says that Jesus in his ministry had so many obvious signs. The book of Luke includes much of that. In fact, Brother John, before he started the study of Luke, he finished through the book of Acts. They're to be read together. And Luke makes very clear that Jesus was the Messiah based on the miracles and wonders that he performed. God proved who Jesus was in his ministry. And this is what Peter said, that God performed these things through him. And at the end of the verse, Peter says, you yourself know these things. And yet, unfortunately, in verse 23, instead of the people of Jerusalem, instead of the Jews, instead of God's people responding to the Messiah, what did they do? They crucified him in hatred. And so in verse 23, Peter says that this man, this man, the Christ, this man, your Savior, this man, Jesus, who was proven to you, who was shown 
for you, who was proven to be the true Messiah, you rejected him, and yet God had it all planned. Look in verse 23. This man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, and yet he says, but you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Peter here stresses the most obvious truth, that Jesus' sacrifice was not random accident. It was not happenstance. Jesus says, I lay my life down, and I will take it up again. And yet equally true, Peter says that this crowd was guilty. They were part of the crowd that shouted, crucify, crucify. This is now 50 days after Passover. That weekend when Jesus died, many of these people were probably there in the crowd rejecting Jesus. And in verse 23, he says, even though you did not physically crucify him, you handed him over to the hands of godless men, which were the Romans. Those pagan men that worshipped all those gods. He says, you were responsible for killing God's son. And yet in verse 23, he says, it was all a part of the foreknowledge, the predetermined plan of God. I know for us, whenever we struggle with scripture, we, we tend to have a, a big heart issue when we consider how is God sovereign and how is mankind responsible and in fact when it comes to church history there's probably no issue that separates Christians more so than those two doctrines put together but I just want to give you some encouragement this morning God is sovereign over salvation no one is saved apart from the plan of God it is all according to his plan God has a perfect timing and a perfect will, and he has a perfect word. But equally true, men are responsible to respond to the gospel. The sovereignty of God should give us comfort in our salvation. If you know Jesus, you are in the hand of God. And Jesus says, if you're in the Father's hand, no one can pluck you out. Yet equally true, man's responsibility should force us to go and spread that message because people need to hear this word. And this is Peter's opportunity. Peter makes much of Jesus. He makes much of God. But he also makes much of their guilt. He says, you were involved personally with the death of Christ, and now you must respond. If you follow the news at all recently with uh, the California fires, the death toll has climbed up to 71. In the last couple of weeks, because of the fire, 71 lives have been taken. And as of Friday night, I was told that about 50% of the fires now contained, but it's already burned through almost 150,000 acres of land. Whenever the, the fire started spreading, you might have heard on the news that two groups were kind of going at it back and forth. You had different groups arguing that it was all about climate change that started the fire. And then you had other groups arguing that it was about mismanagement of the different forests and that they need to get their policies right. And there's this struggle going back and forth. And as everything is in our day, it's politicized. But even more so because this was a life and death situation. Can I just say this? Salvation is a life or death situation. But it belongs to God. And we have a role to play. We have a role to play in sharing this message. And Peter does. He stands up and he shares this first Christian message. In fact... History tells us that in Peter's day and in many ancient kingdoms, there was what was called a crux. He was a town crier. He was a herald. And he would go out before a king and give the king's command all throughout the kingdom. And so we have what many scholars call the first Christian kerygma, the message of the herald. Peter stands before this crowd and he says, Jesus is the king and you must respond to him. You must bow down before him. You must repent and turn from your sins. Because this is the man that died on a cross. And yet if you look in verse 24, Peter says 
that it's just as much as God was involved in Jesus' death, that God was involved in his resurrection. Look in verse 24. Peter says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. And it was impossible for him, for Jesus, to be held in its power. If you do a study of the original language, there's a very interesting word that Peter used here. In verse 24, if you've got a King James or an NIV, you might read the word pangs of death in the New American Standard. In some translations, it might be rendered agony. But in the original Greek, that word means labor pains. So I want you to read verse 24 one more time. This is what Peter's message was. He said, but God raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the labor pains of death. Now that's a very interesting metaphor. But let me give an illustration that a lot of the ladies will appreciate. In the same way that when a lady is in labor, she cannot stop that baby from coming, so equally true, when the time was right, Jesus would rise from the dead. God put an end to the labor pains of death. Jesus, on time and on schedule on the third day, rose again in resurrection power. And all God's people can say, amen. We serve a risen Savior. This was revealed in the mighty acts of God. And Peter says, just as much as God was involved in his life and in his death, God was involved in the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this, for Peter, is the reason that this crowd is to trust in him by faith alone. So without God's sovereignty, there's no gospel. Without man's responsibility, there's no gospel. Look with me beginning in verse 25. The reason that Peter stresses the resurrection is he goes back to the Psalms and he quotes David. In verse 25, he gives a psalm. It's Psalm 16. In your Bible, it might be written in a special font. It comes straight out of the Old Testament. In fact, Acts chapter 2, verse 25 down to verse 28 is an exact copy of what the Greek translation of Psalm 16 was, verse 8 through 11. And so Peter quotes this psalm in Psalm 16, and he says that David knew all along that Jesus would rise from the dead. So number three this morning. Without God's sovereignty, there's no gospel. Without man's responsibility, there's no gospel. But equally true, number three, without the Old Testament, there's no complete Bible. Without the Old Testament, there's no complete Bible. Peter, for proof of the resurrection, points to David. Look at what he says, verse 25. Peter says that here's what David says of him. I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart will be glad. My tongue will exult. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You make me full of gladness in your presence. In Psalm 16, David was giving this praise to God. He was rejoicing, saying, God, I can trust you even in the midst of death. And all throughout the Psalms, David would pray, God, would you save me from my enemies? Would you protect me from those who are trying to persecute me and harm me? Would you keep me, God, in your mighty hand? And Psalm 16 is one of those psalms. And yet when you read these verses, it's strange that David would say these words. Did David have a confidence that he would escape death? Well, it seems that way in the words. But if you look in verse 25, Peter says no. When David wrote those words in Psalm 16, he was not speaking of himself. He was speaking of Jesus Christ. So read the words again. David says of Jesus, Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence. 
Jesus will be at God's right hand. Verse 26, Jesus will be made glad. We can praise him. Verse 27, Jesus would not be abandoned. Jesus would not undergo decay. Verse 28, Jesus would have the ways of life. Jesus would be glad in the presence of God. This is the purpose of the psalm, Peter says. And as an example of that, if you look in verse 29, he says, Brethren, I say this confidently regarding David, that he is dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. In other words, Peter looks to the crowd and he says, we could go visit David's tomb, and his body is still there. He is not the point of the psalm, but one of his descendants is. Jesus came as a descendant of David. He came as a fulfillment of all the promises that God gave to him, and yet Jesus was the descendant that conquered the grave. What David could not do in and of himself, which was conquer death, Jesus did as the Son of God. And in verse 29, he says, I confidently say that David is still dead, but Jesus is still alive. In fact, in Peter's day when he preached this sermon, David was dead for nearly a thousand years, and his body was still left there in the tomb. We're told in history that King Herod actually built a monument out of white stone, this beautiful, elaborate monument that marked the beginning of David's grave. Peter says, you can go visit that grave today, And if you made it back to David's body, you'd find it there. But as the message of the Christian church has always been, if you go check Jesus' tomb, you'll find it empty. Because as the angel said on Resurrection Day, on Easter Sunday morning, he is not here, for he has risen. And this is the message that Peter gives. Peter says that David knew in advance that Jesus was to be alive and God's word would not fail. Go back once again to verse 24. Peter says at the very end, it was impossible for death to handle Jesus. Death had a moment of victory, but death would ultimately be defeated because Jesus rose in resurrection power. The Old Testament is just as much a part of Scripture as anything else. And it's amazing that as proof of Jesus' resurrection, Peter quotes the Psalms. And he says, God's word did not fail when it came to David. And we know that God's word never fails for us. All scripture is inspired of God. All scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for rebuke and reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God will be complete for every good work. Peter tells us in his own letter that no one wrote scripture of their own free will. They wrote scripture as they were led by God, by the Holy Spirit God's word would not fail. Look in verse 30. David, he says, as a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him an oath that he would seat on one of his descendants on his throne. And so in verse 31, he says, David looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And in verse 32, he says, this is Jesus. This Jesus whom God raised up again And we are all witnesses. But I want you to look in verse 30. Peter says David was a prophet. He says that David declared the word of God. And because God's word says that one of his descendants would rise again, Jesus rose again. We might ask the question, why is it that Jesus had to rise from the dead? Peter's answer would have been, because God said so long before he was alive. Because David prophesied it, because God promised it in Scripture. Jesus had to rise because God said so, and it was a part of his word. And in verse 30, he quotes Psalm 132, 
that Jesus would be one of the descendants of David that would sit on his throne. But God raised him up. So without God's sovereignty, there's no gospel. Without man's responsibility, there's no gospel. Without all of scripture, we have no complete Bible. And I want you to look at the last part of this passage, verse 33. He says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this in which we both see and hear. It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Number four this morning, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no complete faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no complete faith, no relationship with God. He says here in verse 33 that Jesus is now exalted to the right hand of God. And if you look in verse 33 as we close, what is the sign that Jesus is king? What is the the standard that we know that Jesus reigns, in verse 33, Peter says, it is that he sends the Holy Spirit. He has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and Peter says he has poured forth this in whom we see and hear. Just as in Peter's day and in our day today, if you want to know that you belong to God, he tells us in the power of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost Day, the early church was given its birthday. The early church was birthed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, this is the sign that you know that Jesus is Lord. He not only did miracles in his life, God not only raised him up in power, but God exalted him with the name above every name, and he sends the Holy Spirit out for us to do his work. Look in verse 34. David did not ascend into heaven, but David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool for your feet. This is Psalm 110, verse 1, the most repeated verse in the New Testament. This is the most repeated verse that the early church used to point to Jesus. And it describes Jesus as king. Jesus is on the throne of God, and he's going to come back with a kingdom. Brother John's been preaching through the book of Daniel. And for those of you that have been here on Sunday night, we've seen these prophecies of how Jesus is that stone from heaven that Jesus is that ultimate son of man who comes on the clouds of glory and he establishes his kingdom on earth. But can I just say with confidence this morning that just because Jesus' kingdom might not be here physically right now, we're a part of his kingdom today because we have the Holy Spirit. And God has sent us out to do his work. Peter says here in verse 36, this is the pinnacle of the whole sermon, let the house of Israel know for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Let all people know, Peter says, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's chosen man. He is God's anointed one. But equally so, he is equal with God. And he sits with God. This Jesus whom you crucified. And at the end of the sermon, as any good preacher does, he offered an invitation. Verse 37. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said, Peter, what are we supposed to do? And the rest of the chapter has the answer. Peter says, you're to repent, and you're to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. But I just want to give you that encouragement. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no complete faith. I know the Gideons pass out a lot of material at UCA, and a lot of people my age, they, they don't like 
the scriptures, they tend to reject it. Uh, they, they think of it as somebody else's truth or they, they think of it as oppressive for whatever reason. I want to give you uh, what some scholars call a minimal facts approach. Uh, one scholar by the name of Gary Habermas years ago came up with this strategy and he says, even if somebody rejects God's testimony that Jesus is alive, there are certain facts of history that cannot be denied. And he gives a list like this. He says, when it comes to the minimal facts, there are certain things that history tells us are true. Number one, that there was a man, Jesus, who died by crucifixion. He says, number two, that very soon afterwards, his followers experienced him, or at least they experienced what they thought was him. Number three, because of their experience, this is the big one, their lives were transformed as a result to the point that they were willing to die specifically for the faith that Jesus was alive. He says, number four, these things were taught early, very soon, soon after the resurrection. Number five, James, Jesus' unbelieving brother, became a Christian due to his own experience with Jesus. And his last reason, number six, is this. Even the Apostle Paul, the worst persecutor during the times of the early church, became a Christian because he met Jesus Christ. There are certain historical facts that people have to address. We cannot dismiss Jesus, and we cannot escape the reality of his resurrection. It is attested to in history, and it is proven by the facts of God's word. And this is what Peter stands up and preaches in his first sermon. He gets people ready to respond to Jesus and to go out and to do his message. So I want to ask, as we close this morning, what do we do with a message like this? Well, as you notice, Peter emphasized the resurrection He talked about Jesus' life, he talked about his death, but his focus was centered on the resurrection, that Jesus was God, that he was proven to be God, that he sat at God's right throne, that he, he gave the spirit out, that he ruled in power over God's kingdom. And I think these truths remind us of a few things today. Number one, the resurrection should empower us to live for Jesus with boldness, being unashamed. The early disciples didn't expect to ever see Jesus again after he died. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew says that when they first saw Jesus, some of them doubted. They couldn't believe their eyes. And yet these weak believers, these people who had very small faith, they were empowered by the facts of the resurrection to be bold witnesses, and they stood up in the face of death. And so I ask you, what was the change that God brought about in their life? It was the fact that they knew not just what to believe, but why they believed it. And so I ask you this morning, are you motivated to live for Christ because we serve a risen Savior? Are you motivated by the reality of Christ's resurrection to live for him with a boldness and unashamedness because you know that he is Lord? Number two, the resurrection, I think, it changes how we preach and teach, and it definitely changes how we respond to the gospel. Peter's sermon, as I said, includes that first Christian kerygma. It's a message of Jesus. He directly addressed the crowd. He told them that they were guilty and a part of Jesus' death. He told them that they knew what God's word said and rejected it anyway. But he says that they were all witnesses to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter offered an invitation, but he also gave truth. He didn't ever separate the two. He didn't give an invitation without telling the truth. He didn't tell the truth without giving an invitation. He allowed people to respond. And as one writer said, the message of the church has always been one thing. It's not a sophisticated theology. It's not knowing all the awesome truths of Scripture. It is simply a transformed life. 
It is declaring that in Jesus Christ, God has brought about life for eternity for all who respond to him. And this is the message for Peter. This is an eternal effect that as the audience changes from year to year, as the ages of history go by, one thing will never change, and that is the message of the gospel and that Jesus is alive. And last thing, number three, I think the resurrection should tell us what Jesus is doing right now. The resurrection reminds us of what Jesus' ministry is right now. Because of Jesus coming in the flesh, he experienced death, but he conquered death. And scripture says that he rose in victory, and he sits at the right hand of God, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. You might be reminded of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer tells us why we don't have to go to a priest with our sins, why we don't have to go to a priest with our problems. He says we get to go straight to God because of Jesus. He says, Jesus, because he continues forever, he holds his office permanently. Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save forever all those who draw near to God. He is able to intercede for us because he says he lives forever. Do you need some confidence in your life? Do you need some peace in your life? Is there something right now that you're going through and you have no idea how to handle it? Can I just remind you of what scripture says? You have God the Son pleading with you before the throne of God. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor. And as proof of his resurrection, we have his Holy Spirit who empowers us to live out the gospel faith, to be a witness, and to love others. As one writer said in closing, when Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, he gives us the benefits of his victory. He gives us the spoils of his rule. The Holy Spirit declares that Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king and we belong to Jesus, then that means that we win when it's all said and done. And this is the message of scripture. Jesus, my friends, is alive. Amen? And you can trust him. And if you're here this morning and you've never given your heart to the Lord, I want to give you an opportunity that Peter gave the early listeners, that first audience. He says you repent and you trust in Jesus alone for salvation. This is the promise for the forgiveness of sins. That in the same way that God showed that Jesus was Lord in his life, in the same way that Jesus showed that he was Lord by his death, Jesus proves that he is Lord by his resurrection. And he is able to save us to the uttermost when we call out to him. And as Peter started his sermon, in Acts 2 verse 21, he says, Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we want to give you this invitation in just a moment. And so if you're here this morning, you've never responded to Jesus, you've never responded to that basic Christian message that Jesus is alive, that he came to live a perfect life, that he died a death as our substitute for our sin, and that he rose in power as a testament of who he was. I want to give you that opportunity today. But as we respond, maybe you need to respond to something else. Maybe you need to respond to be thankful for God's Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to ask God to empower you to be a witness and to live for him unashamed. Or maybe you just want to come and pray for somebody that's around you. Will you just use this time as we give it to the Lord and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give to you now just a time of invitation, a time of closing. And we ask that in spite of our different service this morning that you would bless what your word had to say. Impress upon our hearts the truth that Jesus is alive. That Jesus is God. That he came and that he offered his life as a sacrifice. But as Peter says, that death could not handle him and the grave could not hold him. 
Jesus is king. And just as Peter was bold enough to share that, will you give us that same boldness today? As the passage closed, Peter said that we're put in your family by the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that you start changing us from the inside out. And so I do ask that as we give this time to you, you would work and bless our service. That you would help us to praise you. That you would help us to trust in you alone for salvation. That you would give us the strength to minister to this world that's in desperate need of the gospel. We're thankful that so many have joined and answered the call to share your message because of their witness. It's why we have our service today. But help us be like Peter, where he stood up and he shared a message of Jesus. We thank you for our time together, and we thank you for our church, and we ask that you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen.